Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month, or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm going down something that I actually have absolutely no knowledge of whatsoever, but I'm hoping today's guest, Dr. Andrew Ross, who is a writer and historian, will be able to tell me more about this, as he's here to talk to us about his new book, Donald Ross and the Highland Clearances. So, Andrew, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Thank you. Yes, I'm I'm fine, thank you. Okay, so who is Donald Ross and his family, and what are they up to in 1764 in Scotland? Right, okay. Well, actually, the year 1764, that was the year that Donald's father was born. Donald Ross and his father was Donald Ross. So there were three Donald Rosses in a row. And they, they ran the, uh, the mill on the Skibo Castle Estates. The time, that's that time in the 18th century, the, the mill was probably pretty small. It was probably a, what's called a horizontal click mill, which is just a simple horizontal paddle, which was just put in the stream to turn a mill wheel and it would have just been covered by a small turf hut uh, but in uh, 1790 the mill was destroyed by a flood and the miller uh, was then or then rebuilt the mill uh, this time in stone and gave it a thatch roof and with a, an outside vertical water wheel so more like the more modern water mills you tend to think of and then after that, the Duke of Sutherland uh, had a mill pond built, which meant that the the water leading to the mill could be better regulated by a, a sluice gate. Uh, and the mill pond's still there today, but the the mill is long gone. Hmm. But it does show that the the mill actually served the local community and, and not just uh, the Skibo estate. Now, Donna Ross, who, you know, the main subject of the book, he was actually born in 1813. And he took over the mill when his father died in 1838. And the following year, he, he got married to May Bain. Uh, but this is quite unusual because she was actually 16 years older than him. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's usually the other way around. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, very unusual. But this has actually been really helpful for checking the records because she also kept her maiden name. Uh, and Donald Ross is a, a pretty common name. So if, when looking through the censuses, finding... Him and his, his older wife with her original name is, is you know, you know, dead on with the, finding the right record. Yeah, and they, they had one daughter, but I, I believe she was adopted because she came from Wicking Caithness and there's, there's no family connection with that area. Okay, so life for the family doesn't go too smoothly, does it? Um, they yeah. end up getting evicted. How, what is the reason for their eviction and, um, how does it affect the family? Yeah, it's quite a blow to them because, you know, they were doing well. They, they had the mill and they also had a small farm. So they were getting income from the mill and the, the farm enabled them to grow crops and keep cows. So they're completely self-sufficient as well. 
Yeah, and so they'd have lost their income and way of uh, living. Um, But yeah, amazingly, they actually fought against their eviction in the courts, which was pretty well unheard of because most people, if they're evicted, they just disappeared. Um, So the first eviction notices were served in 1841, not only to Donald's family, but also to his extended family, his his mother and sisters, his brother's family and and his uncles. And they were living in four different houses in Clashmore at that time. And the reason they took them to court is because they thought they would would be able to get money back because they had a a letter that was written in 1792 from a previous laird, George Dempster, who basically said that if ever they were evicted, they were entitled to compensation. Um, But the the laird they were dealing with at the time was his nephew, and he argued that that letter didn't apply to him because he hadn't written it. Anyway, um, so they, they actually had to leave the mill and farm in 1843 and they lost their case in Dornock Sheriff Court, but then they took the case to the Supreme Court in Edinburgh and it dragged on for the next few years, but unfortunately they ultimately lost, but they did get some expenses back, so they didn't lose everything. But before the, the verdict, um, uh, Donna was renting a house in Clashmore and his mother and sisters went to live with him after they were evicted um but you know they didn't have any income so to make ends meet he actually resorted to forging bank bills in his brother-in-law's name (laughs) and um, he got into trouble he was arrested and charged with uh six counts of forgery um but his brother-in-law uh actually legged it to america so he didn't have to testify against him (laughs) and uh Donald luckily got let off with not proven, otherwise he could well have been deported to Australia or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, while he was in prison, he had all his furniture seized by the bank to pay off debts. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, no. So it's been a bit of a rough time for him. (laughs) It seems like quite an extreme measure. It's like, well, we need some money. I know, let's just make some. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was a bit, yeah. So what is the Glen Calvey clearance? And how were the Ross family involved? Okay, well, um, I think I'd probably better explain a bit about the hiding clearances in general, just so yeah. just in case any listeners just don't know anything about it. So, yeah, I mean, the hiding clearances is a pretty dark part of Scottish history, which people don't generally tend to hear about. Um, it sort of started in the late 18th century, where landowners realised that actually sheep farming was more lucrative than just getting... Uh, small rents from their local populations. Um, but the problem is the two didn't go well together. And people had cattle, which they needed the pastures to feed on. But also, you know, the, the, the pastures were needed for the sheep. So best way of dealing with that is that the landowners just got rid of the people, even though they've been living there for hundreds of years. Yeah. And yeah. they, they didn't, the people didn't own the lands. They were, they're, renting uh, and they they didn't have leases so they could be served eviction notices at any time and just given a a couple of months to to get out and you know if they refused and didn't leave then they just set fire to their houses which is pretty gruesome really pretty brutal yeah yeah um oh and a major clearance that happened in sutherland was in in the early part of the 19th century in strathnaver and kildonan Uh, and within about Eight years, uh, four thousand people were evicted. 
Wow. As uh, a, a local stonemason reported on the evictions, and he, he climbed a hill and he described 250, 250 houses on fire that he could see. Wow, that's, that's not a small number. No, it's just awful. And, you know, if you drive through those glens today, you know, there's one or two cottages, but nothing, completely empty. And you just try and imagine that, you know, that there are thousands of people living there 200 years ago. It's really, really hard to, to imagine. Anyway, so that's what's happening generally in Scotland. But a lot of the, re- the clearances weren't reported. You know, half of what went on, we probably just would never know about. However, the Glencowby clearance was the first one to actually be widely reported in the press. Um, basically because the Times sent a reporter who wrote a series of long articles and suddenly for the first time people actually found out what was really going on up in the homes. So Glencowby itself is a little glen in Rothshire and where the Cowby burn runs into the river, River Carron. Hmm. And, uh, so in 1842, the people were to be served eviction notices, but they resisted. And they, they intercepted the messenger, got the notices off him and burnt them. So legally, they weren't able to be evicted without having the notices legally served on them. So that was a way of delaying the evictions. And this went on for a couple of years. Now they are finally evicted in 1845. They had nowhere to go, so they actually set up camp in the, the local graveyard of Croke Church and, and lived there for a while. And uh, the local ministers got together a, a, an appeal in the newspapers uh, for donations to help them. And Donald joined the, the list of people who were gathering money, gathering the donations to help the people. Yeah. It's quite an interesting little list of people. So it included the, the minister who had married Donald and his wife in Dornock Cathedral, and also solicitor Charles Spence, who is actually the solicitor from Edinburgh, who is defending Donald's family in their eviction case in the Supreme Court. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, the fight, after a, or a few, several months, the people finally dispersed from, from and found play, other places to live, but weren't doing particularly well. No, but Donald goes on to work within the uh, the Scottish Association for the Protection of the Poor, doesn't he? That's right. Um, yes. Yeah, so, again, a bit of background to that. Um, yeah. In 1845, uh, the new Scottish Poor Law was introduced. Now, before then, it was the the local parish churches who looked after the poor, and they distributed. Uh, aid to the most needy, but that that was ad hoc, and it, it varied from parish to parish. So the poor law was set up to, to make it a fairer system, but it didn't actually work out that way because um, it's was, it was paid for by rates, and and the more wealthy landlord wealthy landowners were expected to pay the highest proportion of the rates for this for this uh, for the relief payments. So it's pretty unpopular with them. Because they didn't really want to have to pay the money out. Yeah, um, no changes there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there was a, a local inspector of the poor who basically decided the cases and who was entitled to the payments and who wasn't for, for each of these parish areas. But often the the local inspector was in was in the employ of the 
major landowners. So he is also employed to try and reduce the relief, relief payments to as minimum as possible. So, yeah, it's a pretty unfair system. Um, and so the Scottish Association was set up to help the people um, that were being refused the relief payments. And uh, Donald, and it's actually it's Charles Spencer's solicitor who helped set that up. And there's two branches. There's one in Edinburgh and one in Glasgow. And Donald was employed as the agent for the Glasgow branch. And he became incredibly successful. Uh, within two years, he helped over 1,500 people get relief payments, which were being withheld, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it, it was what wasn't, it even took some of the local inspectors to court and won the case, the 90% of his cases. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and they often appeal, but again, lost their appeals. That's pretty impressive. Really they didn't have any legal time. training. <laughs> <laughs> that makes even, that is really impressive for that time. Yeah, absolutely. But he, <laughs> again, he got, he got complacent and, uh, he supported the, the, so people, you know, he's doing so well that people were trying it on. Mm. And he wasn't, he got, cause he was dealing with so many cases, he, he wasn't that careful in actually checking the details. And uh, he supported three cases in a row that turned out to be fraudulent by the oh, no. <laughs> And he was, he, was, he was nearly arrested for aiding and abetting them. Um, but unfortunately, the bad publicity meant that the the actions of the association had to stop and he, he lost his job over that. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, um but anyway, it's the problem when people are overworked, when you're yeah. overloaded with work. <laughs> yeah, you just, yeah, you've got to be careless, and unfortunately, that, yeah. But we get some more evictions, um, this time in Strathhead and an exodus from Borough, don't we? Um, yeah, so the poor people of Scotland, it was, it was one thing after another with them. So in 1856, they were hit by the potato famine. So basically the potato blight came to Scotland and destroyed the potato crops. And that, that was their main source of food. Um, the year before, it, you know, it devastated Ireland. It, you know, it's a lot worse in Ireland. And it was estimated that about a million people starved to death because of it. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was awful. Um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I had heard a small bit, small amount of the Scottish potato blight, um, potato famine, but it's it's always overlooked in sort of popular memory by the Irish one because of yeah, the, absolutely. the casualties. But it was no less devastating. Yeah, although they were people were helped. So there's a relief fund set up in Scotland to supply meal. Um but it, it wasn't just doled out. Unfortunately the the men had to work for it, building roads and bridges and digging ditches. Mm. And if for a day's work they were only given one pound of meal, oatmeal or the other kind of ground meal yeah and if you had a large family that was very little to actually live off um, and if you're burning calories building roads and things you yeah. need more than that because you'll just starve to death yeah from... yeah it wasn't good i mean they uh, they got through it but you know it must have been pretty tough yeah and you know unfortunately some of the some of the landowners took advantage of that i mean not not even just they just give out the meal they actually gave it out on credit so that the people were expected to and for it oh, they got, when they got some money in the future. So, yeah, it's terrible. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the, so this 
this fund was, yeah, yeah, pretty scant, but it was, at least it kept the people alive, but it stopped in 1850. Mm. And, you know, see, the people had to sell sell their cows and they had no way of growing any crops because they'd failed so that so suddenly there's no way of living and so and then the landowners you know suddenly had to by the poor lord had to pay out to support an impoverished population so their solution well get rid of them clear them yeah there's no poor if we move them on (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah it's a new wave of evictions so yeah, uh, so Donald heard that 600 people were going to be evicted from the, the Strathaird Peninsula in Skye. So he went there to investigate. And from his investigations, he discovered that it, well, the process hadn't been done legally. Um, and he complained about that. So the people weren't immediately evicted, but it, but it just gave him a stay of execution for a couple of years because then it was done properly and they're, they're kicked out a couple of years later. Mm. Um, but yeah, at least again, Donald publicised what was going on with that eviction. Uh, in Barra, similar situation. So 660 people were evicted, and somehow many of them managed to get to the mainland. And then they they walked all the way to Inverness in Glasgow. I mean, that's wow, hundred mile walks. I mean, we, I mean, you know, how they managed that, I just don't know because you know, they had nothing to live off. Um, and then so they arrived in Glasgow and they're coming to. Donald's office trying to get to get money, but he but because they weren't living there, he couldn't help them. Yeah, and uh, he actually took a a party of refugees from Barra all the way to Edinburgh, because the, the landowner actually had a house there, and he took took the refugees to the landowner's house, but he he wasn't there at the time. He was uh, at his castle in Aberdeen. His but, second uh, home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it, some people sort of ended up in the refuge uh, ref, houses of refuge and workhouses and given a bit of employment here and there but it's yeah another great time yeah so um i mean we've touched on it a bit but i think we should really look at this closer how how dire are the poverty levels in the highlands at, the, at this time yeah so at that time yeah it's pretty pretty bad for the, for the poor people who had nothing i mean yeah it was just desperate um, yeah, so they they don't, don't they got rid of the cows during the famine and didn't have any crops to grow because they hadn't got any seed, and then yeah, and, and then nowhere to sustain themselves. Um, and another problem was actually the crofting system itself. So that sort of started in the eight sort of eighteen hundreds, where rather than having sort of shared farms, they were given their own little plot of land. Mm. Uh, but it's quite small, and it's even then barely in the. Uh, big enough to sustain a sustain a small family, but often the families got bigger and bigger, and then the crops got sub subdivided. So the, the plots for each of those families got smaller and smaller, effectively. Yeah. And you know, and then then they were evicted, and you know, if they couldn't find anywhere else to live, they, they often ended up being beggars or ended up in the slums in the, the big towns and cities. Um, yeah, there were there's some reports of starvation, but that was actually before recording of deaths became mandatory in the in 1855. So it was generally hushed up. So it was a pretty desperate time. I mean, any, any of the people that had did have money before then, they'd already, you know, they'd already gone somewhere else. They'd emigrated to the colonies. Yeah. And, uh, so, but yeah, yeah, so it's just the poorest that were left behind who were really struggling. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, I'm going to have to apologize for this because as a naval historian, I always get distracted by boats and ships. And so when I saw this, I had to uh, I had to throw this question in. Can you tell us about the voyage of HMS Hercules? Yeah, so that was one of the emigrant ships. Um, and so, yeah, another solution to, to get rid of the poor people was actually, yeah, put them on ships, ship them out, ship them to the colonies in, in, in North America and Australia. So the in 1852, the Highland and Island Emigration Society was set up to to pay the fares for people who wanted to emigrate but couldn't, and that was overseen by the government. And yeah, over in, in five years, the the society actually assisted 5,000 people to emigrate, which is quite a lot. And yeah, one of the emigrant ships that they've funded was uh hms hercules yeah and it's one of the first ships to leave and it's the plan was to take 750 people to australia uh donald was involved with that uh he actually managed to get hold of uh, eight thousand books to supply to the people so they had something to read for their journey which was pretty wow. amazing and yeah. uh yeah, if you knew the schoolmaster was assigned that ship very well, and so the schoolmaster was actually regularly writing to Donald to let him know how things were going, and then Donald uh, published those letters in the newspaper. So we've got quite a detailed account of this particular um, case of, of you know, an emigrant ship, but it didn't go at all well. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, so it actually set off. Uh, for, on Boxing Day, 1852, from Campbellton. Mm. And, you know, setting off in the heart of winter was, was really not a good move. It almost immediately ran into a storm, and the ship got damaged, and it had to berth at Rothesay for repairs. And it spent two weeks there getting repaired, and it set off again, ran into another storm, and had to set up a, a setting at Cobb in uh, Southern Ireland. Mm. Um, but then people, but then fortunately then small, smallpox and typhus broke out on board the ship. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in a small, small uh, space spread like wildfire. Um, so all the people were actually taken off board the boat and the sick were taken to hospital. Um, and the, the remainder were put up in cramped accommodation. 
So more cases were breaking out. And of course, some of the people died. And unfortunately, including the doctor who was assigned to the ship. Um, so it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, and the, yeah. the ship was actually stuck there for three months. Wow. Yeah. And it set off with only half the passengers that it originally had. Uh, cause, you know, some of them had died. Some of them were still ill and had to stay behind. And it felt that, you know, that half the passengers were well enough to take the journey. But even on the journey, some, some more, um, cases of typhus broke out, more died. Um, I mean, finally, the, the ship ended up, we managed to make it to Australia. Um, but it, but the journey took seven months. Yeah, you have to go around, uh, this is well before uh, the Suez, so you have to go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope, and that's yeah. a long old trek. Yeah, yeah, it went, yeah, stopped off at South Africa. Yeah, you have to go up all the coast of East Africa and across down to the down the Indian coast. You can't just peel across the Pacific. You've got to do port jumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven months the journey took, and only yeah, only half the passengers got there. Um, but the ones that had to stay behind, they they were put on other ships because a lot, a lot of the, you know some of the families got split up with some people staying behind and some having to go on the ship, so they they, they were sent along later on. But uh, yeah, pretty great. And you know the people had never been on the boat before, so it's, you know a lot of them suffered seasickness. Um, and yeah, and there's, there's there's children born, babies born on on board, and yeah, yeah. It's quite, quite amazing. We also, also in this sort of period though, we have, um, one of the last major wars that we're involved in in Europe, which is the, uh, the Crimean War. How does this affect, um, the massacre of the Rosses? Okay. Well, okay. Right. Two things going on there. So if yeah. we start with the Crimean War. Okay. So that started on the 27th of March, 1854. And basically, uh, Britain and France were, were fighting Russia in the Crimea. And it's probably, Best known for the, the suicidal charge of the light brigade. And yeah, also, that's the one that's Yeah, and then it's also the time that Florence Nightingale went there to, to help the wounded. Um, but it's also mentioning the, the thin red line. And that's where, uh, the 93rd Sutherland Highlanders just formed a, a line of men with rifles and stood their ground and Amazingly repelled a 400 strong Russian cavalry charge. Yeah. It was quite a heroic, uh, event. There's a famous painting of it, isn't there? Ah, uh, yeah, there is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The massacre of the Rosses. Right. Well, um, so this has affected the people of Greenyards in Strathcarran in Rothschild, which is actually not far from where the Glen Cowdy clearance took place 10 years earlier. And, um, it was basically, yeah, a massacre itself was a, it, can, it happened four days after war broke out. And of course, everyone's more interested in what was going on in the war than what was going on in the Highlands. Yeah. So it's a, a good day to bury bad news. That's what I was going to say. Always bury yeah. bad news. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the, the people of Greenyards had actually been resisting eviction uh, by the the same method as used previously, which is intercepting the messengers and, and burning the eviction notices. <laughs> um, but the 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 landowners uh, and the, the sheriff they got they got pretty fed up with this, and the sheriff of Tain decided to set an example of them, 
and he got together a posse of 27 policemen from outside the district, so they, they didn't know the people. Mm. And he took them into Green Yards early in the morning of the 30, 31st of March. Uh, however, the people had been tipped off, so they were, they were waiting for them. And there was a crowd of two to 300 people from Green Yards and the surrounding area uh, to intercept this posse of policemen. And the women were at the front, as they thought they'd be safe, because, you know, no, no one would hurt the women, <laughs> but they, they were so wrong. Yeah. Um, the sheriff said, clear the way and knock them down, and it which was actually reported by witnesses. And the policemen rushed in with their batons and basically beat the hell out of them. And, uh, you know, some of the women were hit so, f- so hard that, the, you know, these solid ash batons broke. Wow. And, and the, a lot of the women were just left for dead on the field, completely insensitive. Um, really, you know, with blood pouring out of their heads. It was really gruesome. Um, so, yeah, the, but the local procurator fiscal, um, who was actually the cousin of the sheriff, had t- taken the men in, uh, he immediately sent a doctor to, to dress their wounds and help the people. And the doctor actually wrote a very detailed report on the injuries that same day. Mm. And he, you know, he reported of broken limbs and fractured skulls and, and deep gashes and, ah, oh, awful. Flashing back, my grandfather was a policeman and I, he, we, he let, he, we got his trunction and I know how hefty that is. So to the sort of damage you could do with one. Right. Let alone hit someone hard enough to break it in two. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite impressive. Yeah. Well, impressive force, but, um, yeah, it must have been horrific. Yeah. So yeah, Donald heard about what happened and he, he went there and actually interviewed the victims and he, he described in detail the injuries of 19 of the women. Uh, and again, he, he, and he must have. The doctor was, may have still been there because he clearly must have got some of the, the doctor's report and, uh, repro- and published some of it. And, um, yeah, and he, he thought some of the, some of the women were, were so badly injured that they, they weren't going to live much longer. Um, but actually there's no evidence that any of them actually died. Um, it was just before death records were being recorded, were had to be recorded. Um, but there's no reports that any of them died. Um, I actually did a look around the local graveyards and didn't find any of the, the names and dates that matched. Um, so yeah, I don't, yeah, we don't know. Might, a couple of them may have died, we don't know, but it is, there's only yeah. no evidence that any of them actually did. And certainly, you know, a couple of them, they went on to have large families. There's one, one woman who, you know, she had a fractured skull, but she went on to get married and have a large family and there's, you know, got living relatives today. Oh wow! I mean, that, that's that, that's good. I mean, fra- fractured skull, especially in that sort of time, the early ni- early mid nineteenth century, would probably be a death sentence. So to to go on and do that, that's that's really good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it could have had, you know got infected and died of that, you know, from infections. Um, which leads uh, talking of women. This leads us on to uh, who is Harriet Beecher Stowe? Okay, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, yes, she's actually an American author. And she became famous for a, a book entitled Un- Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that highlighted slavery in America uh, at that time. And she successfully campaigned to end it. 
So she became famous because of that. Um, in 1853, she embarked on a, a European tour and she became a, a guest of the second Duke and Duchess of Sutherland. And she wrote a book about our travels, which was entitled Sunny Memories, which came out in 1854. Um, but within it, she mentioned, uh, you know, how good the Duke and Duchess were for improving the prosperity of the, the people on their lands. Um, but uh, this inflamed a, a few people, including Donald. And he wrote to her to saying, well, actually, you know, what about, the, you know, the clearances? Um, you know, why don't you go and visit the sites of the clearances in Sutherland and, and see the the ruins of the, the people that were, were kicked out? So that, that yeah, it's just a, a small connection with, with Donald and, and uh, Harriet there, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've talked about immigration. There was quite a large uh, sort of Scottish contingent that were um, emigrated towards Canada. Um, so was Nova, did, was Nova Scotia the new start that they'd hoped for? Yeah, so, yeah, I better put, um, put in the background of how they ended up in, in Nova Scotia. So, yeah, in the, in, actually in the mid 1850s, there was a, a second wave of the potato famine. Um, but there was no government supported funds set up to help the starving people. Uh, but Donald was pretty amazing. Oh yeah, the Crimean War was still waging on and there was a patriotic fund set up to, to help the, the soldiers in the Crimea. Mm. Um, but the people, but the starving Highlanders were, were not being helped at all. So, Donald campaigned tirelessly to raise money to help them, and he, he was he was incredibly successful. Uh, well, there was one particular group that uh, helped him a lot, and that were the Quakers, um, because they were actually against war, so they felt that they couldn't actually help the Patriotic Fund, but they could help starving Highlanders, so that they gave. Yeah. Donald quite a lot of money and he, he raised a lot of money from elsewhere by lots of adverts uh, in the newspapers. He published lots of pamphlets to describe, describing the situation there. Um, and you know, so he, first we he supplied them with sacks and meal so that it immediately stopped them from starving. Uh, but then to make sure that to get them self-sufficient again, he then supplied them with hundreds of sacks of potatoes and seeds and vegetables, which they could plant. Uh, to be self-sufficient, he sent them, sent them bundles of clothes as well. And he even supplied a few fishing boats to the Isle of Skye. Um, but he was actually taking 5% cut of the donations, so he was doing quite well out of it. Um, but then, you know, it's pretty like a, a director of a charity today, getting a, a, a large salary. Yeah, yeah, so I was thinking, I mean, he, he's, he's doing a lot of legwork, it would be rock. It would be wrong in inverted commas to uh, not take a little slice, you know, to pay yeah. for his time and uh, yeah. efforts. Yeah, when he and his family had to, to live while he was doing that. But, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he, he probably saved hundreds of people from starving to death, if not thousands. Which is more but, important. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but he, unfortunately, he became a victim of his own success. Okay. Uh, so by 1857, the the people in Scot the poor people in the uh, Hebrides and mainland Scotland. They had the best crop that they'd had in probably a decade. And that's because it supplied them with all the, all the seed and vegetables and things from the year before. Um, but he was still trying to make a living from the donations. And uh, he wrote to a, 
a rich lady in London saying that about people on North Uist uh, that their crops had failed and they'd lost fishing boats and some men had drowned in a storm. And she then sent that letter to the Inverness Courier newspaper and they thought, oh, this is terrible, we haven't heard about this. And they then wrote to the local minister and sheriff of North Uist but they wrote back and said, everything's fine. We've had the best crops we've had in years. And it's not just drowned. It's not been a storm. <laughs> and then, oh, God. So then uh, that was it. So uh this was plastered across the newspapers. Yeah, Donald's a fraud. Don't give him any money. Uh, oh, no. And, yeah, suddenly I'm doing well. His, uh, you know, his name was Mud. And uh he had to resign from the Glasgow Celtic Society, which had just helped set up. And, uh, yeah, he legged it to Canada. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it, it didn't go well. Uh, he became, I'm not sure where he, where he went. Unfortunately, um, emigration records are pretty hit or miss. Not all of them kept. Yeah. Donna Ross is a common name. I haven't been able to find a match. I don't know where he, he left from and I don't know where he went to. So it's impossible to know which ship he actually went out on. Um, but anyway, there's, there's a letter published in, uh, a newsletter of the Quakers saying that he'd become ill and doctors have suggested that he moved to Nova Scotia, Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he'd get better treatment. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they set up a fund to help him and actually, oh, wow. yeah, and actually raised, uh, uh, some money, which they sent to him and that, that enabled him, his family to get back on their feet and he got employment as a, a, a bookkeeper for a merchant company. So yeah, and he, um, Lived there for the the next thirty years until he, he died in eighteen eighty two. He's he's definitely a survivor, isn't he? He goes Absolutely. he's had his life's really quite interesting. Lots of success, harrowing pitfalls, then rebuilds it all again. He's he's, he's something someone definitely to root for. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing, yeah. Um incredible. And of course, you know, he was incredibly prolific at writing pamphlets and the newspaper articles, so which told his whole story. And then, you know, added to that is, is all the court documents uh, from you know, the eviction <laughs> case and the, the case in the Glasgow courts. And there's also other uh, court cases related to the clearances. Um, you know, so it's managed to build up a, a really detailed picture of his life and uh, what was going on in Scotland at that time. And your book really presents it in quite an interesting way. Um, it really intrigues the reader to read more. Like I said, I had a vague I, I knew I think I'd heard of the Glencoe massacre which I don't think much anything to do with this and anything from like Culloden up until a lot later I didn't really know that much about Scottish history so this has been um it's a it's a really um interesting study of social history of the highlands and uh the economics of it the the, the way the landlords are treating the poor it's just yeah. horrific yeah yeah it's fascinating I mean you know, I got really into it. I mean you know I'm I mean I was born in England um my grandfather's Born in Glasgow, but he died, you know, many years before I wasn't. You lived in London, so we didn't know anything about the, the, the family history at all. And yeah, you know, and Don, you know, just from checking the, the records in um, of the National Archives, getting the census and birth, marriage, and death records, so I had this name Donald Ross on my family tree for for quite a few few years. But you know, it's a common name. Yeah, it was only by chance that I made the link that the the Donna Ross in my family was this same one that went on to write all about the appearances and uh, you know, other things. And it, it, like I said, it, he he's such an amazing character. 
with such an interesting life it's um yeah. it's really quite compelling reading thank you yeah no, yeah fascinating i mean i i did actually write in a lot more than it's in the book but i had to cut it down because there's a there's a word limit for the book yeah <laughs> plenty of other other things i could have written about for that but if you want to redress the balance if there's any stories that you had to leave out that you want to tell uh, we, we <laughs> you can go for it here if you want yeah the, the noida evictions um so this was the year before uh the 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 massacre of the rosses and basically so you've got the population of noida which is a peninsula in scotland but it's you can't actually get to it very easily from the mainland unless you walk 20 miles so the only way to get there is by boat you know even now and uh so the the people of noida um yeah they're pretty poor again you know this they'd lost a lot during the potato famine and barely hanging on and the landowner wanted rid of them uh and but it was actually willing to pay their fare to, to canada and but they weren't they weren't given any choice you know you had to leave so there is it wasn't quite forced emigration but it's more, more coerced emigration so 332 people boarded a ship called the Sillery off the coast of Skye and set off for Canada. But uh, there are a number of families who refused to leave. And, yeah, basically the, the, the local managers just went around and pulled their houses down. And they just had to fend for the best as they, well they could by just trying to rebuild small little huts but every every week they're, they're these little huts and sh- poor little shelters get got pulled down and uh, again donald heard about this and he went there and wrote in detail about what happened and what was happening to them and the this local catholic minister as well was also helpful to them yeah. and uh, donald managed to to get them tents and they actually set up the tents in the grounds of the local uh, catholic church and uh, lived there for about three years in these tents oh, wow. um, before donald's actually made to were able to raise money to for them to immigrate to canada to join their relatives it's just so heartbreaking to just you know that one day you've got a nice happy family farm suddenly some guy just doesn't t- just decides to come either force you to immigrate or just send some lads around to turn to tear your house down it's just horrific yeah, no it is horrific i mean i must just saying that not all the, the the landowners were like that you know that there were no. some there were landowners who did look after people uh like Mackenzie of gerlock you know he was uh good to his people um but yeah really a lot of the uh landowners the ones that purchased the the estates um so they had and that, that was sort of from England. So they had no ties to the people, no historical ties, you know, no no sense of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And they just bought these estates to, to make money. And they yeah. weren't making money and the people were in the way. Um, yeah, and then, because, exactly. then, but then it went pear-shaped anyway for them because the the, the sheep farming side of things failed. Um, and the sheep farmers moved away, but then the estates got, got converted into the, the deep, the, the hunting parks. Dear parts mm. of the rich. I must admit, I've, I've, I genuinely, I've really learned something today. That it's, um, I think it's definitely one for the readers to, for the, for the listeners to go out and buy. Um, 
and thanks for coming on and telling us about this book. Could you remind everyone the, the title of your book and where they can get it from? Uh, yeah, the, the book is called uh, Donna Ross and the Highland Clearances, and uh, it's, the publish, publishing date is the 15th of June uh, by Amberley Publishing, uh, but it's already uh, available to pre-order from their website and uh, other other websites. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, people buy it and enjoy reading it. And thank, thanks for coming on. That's all right. Thank you very much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.